This is episode 326 of the AWS podcast, released on August 4, 2019. Podcast confirmed. Welcome to the official AWS podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. Simon Lynch here with you. Great to have you back, and I'm joined by a very, very special guest. I'm joined by Adrian Crockroft, who's the VP of Cloud Architecture Strategy here at AWS. Welcome back to the podcast, Adrian. Hi there. Great to be back again. Great to have you on again. Now, you were just uh, you were just down under recently, although we're recording this remotely from one another. You visited the Sydney Summit. Yeah, it was excellent. I was there not for the keynote in the, the summit itself, which I've done in doing quite a few summits, but I was there for the executive event that was held alongside it. And it was a pretty big event. We had a large number of people and two days, and there was lots of interesting content. So, And it's just a lovely location. I really, really enjoyed the Darling Harbour location, had great weather and uh, excellent place to have a summit. It's, it's not the worst location in the world. And, and for those of you who haven't been to Sydney yet, basically the, the location of the summit is across a small body of water called Darling Harbour. And you can literally see the, the central business district right across the water there. It's like a 10 minute walk. So there's no excuse for anyone to come. <laughs> yeah, just go to work as usual and then just like walk for five minutes and you're actually there. It was huge as well. There's so many people. I don't know what the official numbers are, but it was tens of thousands of people and we had hundreds of people in the executive summit. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty exciting. So, Adrian, you, you've come on today to to talk through a few different things. And the first thing is for us to really, I guess, continue on from the conversation we had last time, which was about chaos engineering and being able to build in an unpredictable world. And you've sort of been thinking about what's next, really, about what what happens when, I think, as you called it, uh, when that becomes normal. Yeah, the, the first chaos conference happened September last year, and they, they asked me to do the opening keynote. And I, I did a talk, which sort of the past, present and future and tried to lay out what was going on. And then I looked a little bit into where this is going. And I think that whereas most people associate chaos engineering and the chaos monkeys with Netflix and a few other companies which have been at the leading edge of trying out new things, and it's regarded as a fairly extreme activity to get in there and be creating chaos in your infrastructure. What we're moving to is to make it much more part of the way that you run resilient systems. So it becomes continuous chaos and it's productized and it's something that pretty much everybody that's running a highly reliable, highly available system would be expected to do and know how to do. That's really getting the tooling in place to do that, I think, is kind of where the industry is right now. And are there particular segments of the market you're seeing that really resonate with, like people who have been quite sensitive to or exposed to that fragility in the past who are saying that there must be a better way to do this? I think there's several different areas here. Certainly the large scale global services, you know, obviously Netflix, Uber and Lyft and the rideshare services, the really anybody that's running a, a one of these cloud native environments, they don't want they don't have any scheduled downtime. Everyone expects it to be working all the time. They they're direct to consumer and you can't tell the consumer, hey, I've got an hour's downtime coming. That kind of messaging doesn't work. So in that environment, it tends to be active, active and a lot of deep detailed architecture to keep everything running all the time. So that's that's one section of the market that's really figuring out how to do this. The other area that's interesting um, has historically been, say, airlines and finance companies and things like this, where they've built systems that are really built around um, an active, passive 
kind of disaster recovery failover kind of model and the more traditional data center approach. What's happening there is people are looking at, hey, how do I shut my data centers? And when I've shut all my data centers, the stuff that's in them that runs the business needs to figure out how to fail over to another piece of the cloud somehow. And how do we do that? And we're looking at that now for quite a few companies. And there's a lot of work going on in, in, in finance companies and airlines in particular, and some in large industrial organizations as well. And it's interesting to see how different industries cope with the requirements that they have. And some are heavily regulated, some are not regulated, some have kind of apocryphal regulations where everyone thinks they're regulated by something, but no one can point to the actual uh, black letter law, if I could put it that way, of what, what's required. But certainly one area you've been diving deep into recently is around the US financial industry and some of the strictures and requirements specifically for that particular vertical. What sort of things have you discovered in that in that space? Yeah, the, the US government put in a series of, a, of regulations um, and audit requirements uh, based off of two things. First of all, 9-11, which took out a whole bunch of data centers and there were backup data centers on a different floor in the same building. And when the building goes away, you've lost everything. And the other was around 2008, the financial crisis there. So the result of those two events in particular caused a whole series of regulations to come into place. Some of the larger banks and financial organizations in the U.S. are regulated as strategically important financial institutions, they're called you know, CIFIs. Some of them are more global in context, or GCIFIs is a kind of a phrase they use. They're regulated particularly as a group. So they're, they're basically the recognition is that there's a series of banks who, in an interdependent way, the U.S. economy runs on those. So if they stop, then something bad will happen to you know that month's numbers at a countrywide level. The, the, in fact, the world economy would probably be hit. Uh, maybe nobody in the in the US government would get paid or nobody would be able to get any, you know, the financial flows through the system would be seriously impacted. So they do coordinated testing where they get these companies together and they practice at least once a year various coordinated failovers. What if, you know, between the banks, it's not just one bank testing one application. There's a, a sort of a game day happening at industry level. It's a pretty, pretty serious um, set of regulations and it's it's something that as those banks start looking at updating and modernizing their applications and moving to the cloud, we're starting to get involved in planning that class of applications on, on AWS now. And in, in as much as looking at that, obviously there is there are different tiering of workloads. And one of the challenges I see with a lot of organizations is figuring out which tier is what. A lot of workloads in large enterprises aren't tier one. They can go down for a period of time with, with minimal impact or some internal disruption versus the ones, as you said, that are kind of fundamental to the operations of the financial system. How good are organizations at classifying those? Um, there certainly are ways of classifying them. And it's quite often, it's not so much that they have to be up all the time. It's just they have to operate successfully. So if they say they did something, they really have to have done that thing, right? If you're saying moving $100 million from one bank to another, um, you have to know that it really happened, mm. right? And both banks have to agree it happened or didn't happen. It's okay to say, I can't, you know, we didn't do it, come back later and try again, as long as both sides have that same message. So this is an example of this class of application where uh, it's important to be consistent when you're moving money around between organizations in particular and within organizations. So it's, it's more about consistency than availability. And if you're familiar with the, the CAP theorem about what happens if you partition a, a distributed system, do you want it to continue to run on 
both sides, even though it's it's a, it's remain available and then fix up its differences later? Or do you want it to stop because it has to be consistent at all times? And really, the banks, this type of applications are more consistent when something goes wrong than available when something goes wrong. Yeah, you certainly don't want a a hundred million dollar transfer to happen twice when it should have happened once, or you think it happened and it didn't happen. It's yeah. all kinds of badness when that happens. So, what are some of the what are some of the patterns you're seeing that that become available in a in a cloud native world, and and as some of these larger organisations look to deploy into? The- so, the typical requirements here. I mean, if you look at something, if you look at a you know a large scale active active system, you really don't want any downtime. You don't want anybody to f- see it stopping, right? But it's okay if it's a little inconsistent. Right? If I show you the wrong movies on Netflix, you don't really know that that happened. But if you're looking at these more consistent workloads, we really need to be sure that it happened. So you have to have a budget for making sure that things have become consistent. So it's typically something like 30 seconds that you need to confirm, right, that it actually happened. So distributed systems, you have a bit of time for things to go back and forth a few times. And then if something is completely broken, the system does a disaster recovery failover to another site, and they typically want everything back up again. And the usual uh, number there is about two hours. So you can take two hours of downtime to fail over. Um, but this is before the system is completely back up, right? It's not the first thing failing over. It's like the entire set of applications has to be shut down properly and restru- reconstructed properly at the other side. So that's this recovery time objective and the recovery point objective are the, are the two numbers, right? So if you think about it just from, um, say, you have backups. Let's say you take backups once a day to tape and you send those tapes away somewhere. And that means your recovery point is once every 24 hours. You have a point that you can recover to. And then if you ever have a major disaster recovery, you go pull the tapes from wherever they are and return, pull them to this recovery site and you do your restores. And a few days later, you're back up and you say, maybe I have three days of recovery time objective. So that's a kind of backup restore based one. But as we move to these more online things, it's typically a 30 second recovery point. So you need to know within 30 seconds, did you actually get this done? And you can recover to 30 seconds ago if necessary. And then there's two hours for the recovery time for a failover. So that's kind of the, the model that most of the banks and most of the sort of uh, the government auditors are looking for a, a common pattern that we, we found that most of the organizations were organized around numbers roughly in, in that kind of area. And it's interesting because it's a real step change of expectation in terms of that recovery point objective of being 30 seconds versus, like you said, you know, the, the, the daily backup or then the flip side, which is the synchronous replication option, which then synchronously replicates your inconsistencies as well. So finding that happy middle ground is the the fiendishly difficult problem. Yeah. So what, what it basically means is that you have to be able to recover from the loss of a complete site. And the US is set up in quite a strange way. And this doesn't really apply to the rest of the world. You could argue if you squint at Europe, you could probably do this here. But the way the US system is set up, it's a big market and they have three power regions that cover the US. So the eastern power region covers basically all of the eastern seaboard and the western power region covers the western. And once you come in, I think Chicago is probably eastern in this the way this is categorized. And then the other one is, in, is Texas, the southern area. So basically, there are three independent power grids and every, there have been cases where the entire power grid has gone down across that whole region. And the other thing that they want to make sure is that at these two locations where you're running your workload, that there are no employees in common. So it shouldn't be possible to 
commute for one person to commute to both places. So there are rules like this that basically say you've got to be hours apart and preferably in the other part of the country. So from our point of view, we'd have you know Virginia and Ohio are both the regions we have there are both on the east side, and California and Oregon are on the uh, west side. So we're able to use those in to provide us with um, the kind of resilience that's needed to provide the the two regions for the U.S. market. And I know that doesn't solve the problem for the rest of the world where we don't have enough regions yet but you know we'll, we're figuring this out for the u.s market and we'll get to the rest of the world as we get to it well, i think the nuance here is it's for a particular industry in the u.s market with a particular set of regulations and a particular local power supply uh, scenarios it, this is where localization comes in and that's why we have things like like outposts and other approaches that may suit different geographies or just simply using an, an adjacent region you know, i think uh, in, in europe there's a whole bunch around there that you could easily move workloads between yeah, I think in Europe, you see people basically, say if you're in Germany, you'd use Frankfurt and maybe Dublin as a backup or something like that. Or, you know, Paris, there's there's options around there, regulated at a European level, obviously the stuff at a national level. And there, I think um, we've, we've announced outposts and hopefully over the coming months and years, as, as outposts become a very common way that we can deploy capacity, we'll be able to deploy an outpost as a sort of an internally allocated region for failing over between systems. And that's, you know, there's a bunch of different characteristics there that we need to understand about how the control plane for outposts and the data plane for where you put the data, but it gets a little more complex. But what we have right now is the ability to do these disaster recovery scenarios. And if you look at the way they're done today, you have two data centers and the auditors once a year will force you to show that you can fail over applications between them, but they don't typically pull the plug on the entire data center at once. And it's a bit more coordinated than that. And there may be multiple applications, but it's an application is supposed to be keeping its data synchronized to the other region so that if you know the power goes out or there's a fire in the data center or something like that, or the network's cut, the data is in both places. So this is what that 30-second period is for. You have 30 seconds to make sure all the data you need is in both places. And the way this is done in a lot of traditional data centers is done at the storage tier. So you have a storage area network, you have one of those big big sand vendors, big storage box, and they have capabilities where the blocks in the district and the volumes are shipped across to the other site at a block level. So they do block level replication across regions. Um, and it's an asynchronous push to get there, but then you know there's enough synchronization wrapped around it. You know all your volumes are consistently in sync at a certain point in time. And then you can bring up the database on top. Yeah, and I think the one of the other differences here is that in the past, when you were building out these distributed data centers, a lot of your thought process went into the networking piece. You'd have DWDM links and expensive fiber and all kinds of exotic networking requirements to do. And that's kind of, if you think about the US East, US West uh, options that we have for our customers, they, they don't have to think about that anymore. We, we do that undifferentiated heavy lifting for them. Yeah, I mean, is this is all very custom. It's all very expensive, and it's actually very flaky and hard to test. So quite often, when people test their failovers, they have all kinds of problems. They maybe spend weeks planning the the test, and then they test it, and stuff still goes wrong, and then weeks tidying up afterwards. So it's it's a big disruptive thing, and it, it's a problem because you have to have these other sites for disaster recovery, but they're not really giving you a lot more 
real availability because they're so it's such a fragile thing to actually fail over to them. So if we just look at the layers though, those disk block layer, as I say, there are tools for doing this and we've got things like S3 where you can do S3 level replication. The data in one bucket will be replicated to somewhere else. And we can also do it at the storage tier by moving some snapshots around. There's a, a product from a company called Cloud Endure, which was being used in some of our customers. And I think last year we actually put AWS acquired Cloud Endure. And it's in this general space. So we were doing a lot of engagements using Cloud Endure. So that's come in as, as kind of a tool for doing some of these block level replication coordination things. So that's one level. The next level up is really the database. And there we've got, in some sense, you can think of it S3 is almost a database in some ways, but really we're talking here about DynamoDB using global tables and Aurora in particular with its global table option. So we're working to really harden those applications and test them for these financial workloads because the thing, you know, 30 seconds sounds like a nice long time to spend, but you've actually got to do quite a few things within that 30 seconds and you have to make sure that the long tail latency actually completes within that 30 seconds. So it's okay, the average might be half a second, but every now and again, something takes a few seconds and you stack a few of them together, you can run out of 30 seconds pretty quickly. So that's our level. And then the next level up is really the application level, where if you've got an application, at the application level, you can really talk to two separate databases, but we are really taking all of your incoming traffic and splitting it and sending it all to two places and processing it in both places. So you've got a complete sort of backup copy of everything that um, you can flip over to. It's obviously more expensive and kind of be difficult sometimes to keep these the intermediate processing in sync and have a consistent outcome. So that's, again, that works for some types of app. But what we're really focusing on, I think, is the database tier with DynamoDB and Aurora Global Tables as the fundamental way that you ship your data to be in more than one region. And then you have to build all of the sort of observability around that to know which region is currently active, what's going on, did you finish transferring things over, a whole lot of stuff like that. And so I think we should be keeping our eyes out for new patterns and approaches that are sort of as we iterate through with these customers to say, well, here's, here's a better way to do something because I guess the last thing we want to do is just recreate what we've already done just a little bit better. We want to make it a lot better. Yeah, it's, and it is already a lot better because one of the problems you have in a data center, when you fail over to a data center, you find, oh, it didn't work because that machine you were failing over to has got a, a different version of something on it or it's not configured quite the same way. And it's very hard to maintain configurations in a data center exactly, right? It, there's a lot of manual labor and things that drift in a cloud, you just look at a cloud account, you run a bunch of describe calls over it, you can compare. So you really want to see, make sure that you have all the configurations and your limits and your capacities are all set up in, in both. And you have to, you know, there's a fair amount of work to do that, but it's still much easier to do than a data center and it's much more programmatic. So I think what we're looking at here is eventually moving to a world where we've productized a lot of the things which are common here, rather than having like data center failover is disaster recovery failover is a very custom, bespoke, handcrafted thing. And what we're looking at is moving to something that is more productized using the capabilities of the cloud. And we're working with some customers to prototype what that actually looks like. And as those patterns emerge, we'll document them. Um, there's actually an interesting white paper, Financial Services Resiliency, which was published a month or so ago, talking about some of the patterns here. But we'll we'll get closer and closer to patterns that you can just go and do an install on. And I think coming back to our original discussion around chaos engineering is that when you have more confidence that your failover options will actually work, that tends to also 
make people a little bit more inclined to actually test them and use them on a regular basis, which then, as we know, makes you far more resilient anyway. So hopefully by making this less less bespoke and more common, it means people are far more comfortable in using it. So then the question comes, well, okay, I set this all up, but how do I know it really works? You have to be able to test it and you really want to test it continuously. Banks have this nice thing that they kind of typically do a five-day work week. Some of the more international ones, there's sort of half a day at the weekend where, where they get to close and do maintenance work. Because of that scheduling, they can do things like run tests during the weekend, you know, once a week, which you can't do with more consumer-oriented workloads. And there are obviously some 7 by 24 workloads where you can't shut things down. You do have to do it continuously. But if we look at the practices here, this is where the chaos engineering ideas come in. Unless you're actually proving something continuously, you can't be sure that it's really going to work. So what we want to do is set up multiple regions and pretty much a continuous basis, we're injecting the failure modes that we think it should be able to survive and showing that it does survive them. And that means shutting down a zone to show that the system can run on two out of three zones, practicing the region failover so that you know exactly what it looks like and how quickly it happens and how to train everybody so that when once you hit the emergency, you know exactly how to manage it safely. And the, the best analogy here I've, I've seen is uh, fire escapes. You know, every, everyone that's ever worked in an office building knows that there's all signed by the elevator that says in event of fire, use the stairs and the signs to the staircases. This is globally universal. And if you work somewhere for long enough, there'll be a fire drill practice. You know, everyone will fire around, file out of the building and stand in the parking lot for half an hour, right? Well, they make sure everyone cleared the building, right? Everyone's done this. It's a universal training process. So this is the game day for surviving a fire. And when if, when a building does catch fire, I'm sure it saves a huge number of lives because people know how they're supposed to organize about getting up. Remember there was one time when I was at Netflix, I was I had a little loud hailer by my desk. It was one of the floor sweepers. I was supposed to go around shouting into this loud hailer, everyone get out, whatever, right? And this, this is just people know how to do this and you're trained how to do it. And what we don't have quite often is the equivalent in the data center and, and cloud world. We don't oftentimes have that expertise in practicing it and being sure that we know exactly what to do in the case of emergencies. Well, I think the other element here that's likely to emerge also is a, is a change in what auditing of these practices looks like, whereas at the moment, a lot of auditing is kind of paper-based auditing, you know, show me your your run book, wave your arms at a second data center, but don't actually press the big red button. Whereas you can envisage in a, in a true chaos engineering mode that the audit is get, almost getting a live feed of tests that are being done on a constant basis and can ascertain the quality of those tests and the, the efficacy of the resilience that's been built in. Yeah, and this is similar to the difference in security as well, because the, the security audit and availability audit, well, they're used to being able to look in the guts of a data center and be very picky about it. And when they get to cloud, they say, there's this stuff under the APIs I can't see. But the thing is that above the APIs, they can know everything. So in the same way as with security, you can be sure that something is in a certain state because you can get a tamper-proof log. Mm. Yeah, of exactly its config. And the same thing happens with, with configuration now with, with availability because I say I can know that the system is exactly in this state. I see exactly how it was created. I know the sequence of API calls that created this database and I can extract out its config. And then when I need to create that in another region, I have everything I need to do that and I can validate that it is exactly the same as the one over here and then the data moves over and then everything should work, right? Yeah. So there's very little version skew and there's a lot more available. It's much easier to understand the configuration. So that makes the ability to manage 
manage the audits much better. And you can do continuous audits, right? Instead of being once a year, somebody comes by with a clipboard and interviews everybody, says you've been processing your tickets, you know, properly. Like like it says in the rulebook, uh, you actually query the system to see that what state it's been in and prove the system has been going through regular tests and what the results of those tests were. So it becomes a much more continuous availability, continuous security kind of model. It definitely definitely changes the risk profile and makes it better and more, more realistic. But let's take a complete change of pace literally, because as well as working deeply in the in the banking sector, you've also been involved in, in one of the highest speed sectors around, although I'm sure the, the banking folks would say they move money around the world very, very quickly. But uh, we've been doing a lot of work with Formula One recently. So maybe can you tell us a little bit about what that's looking like? Basically, uh, for the last few years, I've been doing a lot of presentations at executive summits in various places. And, you know, and people ask me to go and talk to executives. So I go and do these in interesting places around the world. And it turns out one of the places that executives sometimes gather is Formula One races. So I did a few of those and got to know um, a little bit about what was going on, both within the F1 environment itself, but also like how those events are run. And then at some point, the F1 organization and AWS started having a conversation. I was peripheral involved in this, but not really in the conversation, but I was aware it was happening about AWS sponsoring Formula One. And this was aimed really at the, largely at the European market. We wanted to do some brand advertising. And as part of doing that, we, we wanted to stick the AWS logo on screen during the race. And this deal started middle of last year was when we finally completed the deal. So I think Silverstone in last July, I think was the very first time that this was announced and you saw AWS graphic on screen. So now every time you watch an F1 race, you'll see little graphic to say insights by AWS with some interesting information about what is going on the track in some way. So that's the advertising piece. We're also taking the entire Formula One they have a data center and they have all kinds of technology and we're moving that to cloud. So we're moving their data center to cloud and we're going through a bunch of different kinds of uh, workloads that they've been building and figuring out various projects to, to move them to cloud. And then finally, we also did a, a part of the deal with them as we're doing some executive summits at some of the races sort of jointly between AWS and F1 as well. So luckily been involved in going back and doing some talks at races. So it's a tough life when you have to have to go to a Grand Prix race to do a talk. Yeah. Well, you know, I have to work through the weekend, you know. This is- that's true. Yeah, that's true. I, I'm sure all of our hearts believe you. Yeah. <laughs> Working hard on the Sunday. <laughs> Sunday <afternoon. laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's d- double time. <laughs> I think one of the interesting things about Formula One, because we, we actually had a Formula One car on the on the floor at uh, Sydney Summit, because there's a few perspectives there. Firstly, Formula One, I mean, it's, it's, it's the circus that travels around the world. And so it's got that classic example of hugely spiky workloads that have to work. So kind of every, every race a weekend, it had better work and it better work at massive scale. But then during the week, unless there's testing or other activities, it tends to taper down a little bit. And the other thing is that the absolute number of sensors on those cars is generating a monumental amount of data that has to be processed in, in if not real time, very, very near real time as well. There's a lot of technology and the thing about Formula One is the, the, there's 10 manufacturers that each have to construct their own car and there are rules. They can't, sh- they, there are a few shared components, but they fundamentally have to construct their own car. And the organization that manages it, the Formula One organization itself, has to set rules. So the organization is trying to decide what the rules should be in the future. So they're doing aerodynamic simulation of potential designs to understand the effect of future rules. And that's one of the areas we're involved in because they're trying to make it easier for cars to follow each other closely around corners so that what they want is the the turbulent wake from the car in front to not adversely in fact impact the car behind. 
This is something that, um, that reInvent Ross Braun was talking a bit about this. So that means they need to run a huge number of aerodynamic simulations for a while, and then they don't need to run very many. So that's another great use for cloud. We're, we're working to give them the capability to run lots of um, simulation jobs. And these are pretty substantial um, runs, you know, a few hundred cores uh, per run for a few hours per run to, to get them to work. So a good chunk of resource. And then when they're done, they don't need to have those machines anymore. So that's another case. So instead of having one cluster for running their high-performance computing workloads, which everyone queues jobs up against. You create a cluster to run each workload and you can run as many as you want and then you shut it down. So that's that's one place. Uh, there's a few other areas we're looking at. One is the, the historical archive of all of the races that we're figuring out how to process that archive, bring it online and mine it for interesting information. And then there's all the stuff at the track itself where we're working to try to get into the real-time feeds and produce information like the probability of an overtake and cornering speeds and things like that, which we're showing on screen with the insights. I think one of the fascinating things too is if you think about the impact that Formula One racing has on general car and vehicle development, you know, it tends to be the, the test bed of, of the extreme of what's possible and then you know, things filter down, things like, you know, anti-lock brakes and traction control and all, all these other cool things to filter down. It's kind of like what the space program does for, for a lot of technology as well. I think from a data perspective, it really helps showcase what having better information about what you're doing and then responding intelligently to that can do for performance. Yeah. For a long time, the instrumentation was a stopwatch and somebody standing in the pits watching the car go by. And, and then they started instrumenting the cars and the individual teams started doing it sort of one by one. And then eventually, I think it was around 2012, the Formula One organization itself took over the telemetry. So every car now has a standard box in it, which uh, sends telemetry back to the track site and they feed data in and it all passes through a common system. There's also video on every car. So there's multiple 4K video streams per car. There's a huge amount of data and it's something like 30 megabits uh, per second running off all cars at all times to the track site. And it's, if you think about how hard it is to get Wi-Fi to work at all and then think that you're making something that vaguely like Wi-Fi working at 200 miles an hour driving around Monaco. It's a, Good luck. <laughs> uh, yeah. I was talking to, I found one of the guys at one of the races that said, oh yeah, we helped build that system. He says it's at the limit of physics. It's, <laughs> it's absolutely, you can't get more bits on that radio successfully. It's totally tuned system. And it's really interesting. So the technology involved there is very cool. Um, so Rob Smedley was presenting in, at the Sydney summit and I forget his exact numbers, but there's a huge amount of data being collected per car, but it's going up exponentially year on year. So every year there is vastly more data than the year before. And that's just been climbing. And they're now deluged in a huge amount of data acquisition and trying to make sense of that. So they're running Monte Carlo simulations and game theory simulations to try and figure out when they should pit and what should happen if somebody else does a thing. It's a very complicated sport. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating world. Now, another world that you are heavily involved in is that of the open source community. And your team is, is heavily involved in a lot of different open source initiatives, et cetera. And I know you've been quite uh, open about our commitment to open source and, and how it all fits together. Are there some, some, some insights or some observations that you can share with, with our listeners about what's happening in, in the open source community and, and things that they should be aware of? Yeah. When I joined about two years ago, I started building a team to really tell the stories of open source and also help AWS contribute more and help people outside AWS have somebody to go to, to you know, someone to talk to, really, to have that conversation and increase the partnership between AWS and the open source communities. So we have at our 
the big conferences like OSCON, the Open Source Conference, the O'Reilly Open Source Conference, um, All Things Open, the various Kubernetes conferences. There's a lot of conferences out there and my team helps operate and sponsor those conferences. We also, at the beginning of this year, signed up as a, I think it's a platinum membership for the Apache Software Foundation, funding them at a much higher level than we were before. We're members of a number of other foundations. So part of my team's job is to figure out which foundations we should be members of write the internal case to do it, find some budget, find who's going to be on the board of the foundation, manage those relationships. And part of it is to get more projects from AWS uh, out, things like Firecracker, Coretto, just the Java distribution. Firecracker is the underlying virtual machine uh, that runs underneath things like Fargate and Lambda and a whole bunch of other projects that, that are out and about. Lots of interesting work going on. I've been gradually building up the team with different specialists in different areas. And it's been been a fun time. I think we've we've really got some some people outside AWS now saying that we're, we're heading in the right direction, doing a lot of good work. And that, that was our, our initial goal was to find out, find the right people and make sure we could, we were doing what they needed to really support the open source communities globally. And I think that's the thing is that there's, you know, we sort of tend to use the phrase open source community. It's really many communities with, with different focuses and different passions and different interests. Uh, there are those that are sort of very developer centric there are those that are hardware centric there are those that are commercially centric there are those that are hobbyist centric and we sort of have a have to have a, a broad coverage of, of a lot of different stakeholders and, and different interests there's a lot a lot of diversity there one that we've been involved in recently is around robotics the robotics operating system ROS it's been around for a long time it started about almost 20 years ago as a university project what's happened most recently is that it's been upgraded to have much more security and more enterprise level features in it for commercial use, and that's called ROS2. And the very first uh, long-term support version of ROS2 was actually released last week. And I've also hired somebody in my team to focus on open source contributions to the ROS to, to this operating system. So I now have a robotic specialist. And what we're doing there is we, we're contributing quite a lot back because if you look at Amazon as a whole, we do lots of robotics. We do the, they, we do the, the warehouse distribution systems. We have the drone, drone delivery and we have lots of customers using robots. So we're pulling all of this together and providing a major um, investment in this open source platform. And we're doing it across you know, lots of other companies are involved too. But there's a, there's a foundation, uh, OSRA, the Open Source Robotics Foundation coordinates all the activity there, and we're, we're uh, one of the major contributors into that. So that's that's one of the more recent ones. And then there's all of the you know projects where we we run something as a service and we contribute back fixes and patches and things like that from you know Kubernetes on one hand, or Elastic, or Redis, or uh, Hadoop, and you know, MySQL, Postgres, all of those where we're, we're con- mostly we're contributing back um, patches and fixes. But every now and again, we get a bit more involved, a bit more deep. For example, in Kubernetes, we have we hired one of the contributors, the core contributors from the Etcetrad service, which provides the database that stores all the configuration information to make Kubernetes run. Turns out, making Kubernetes scale is largely how well can you scale that database. So we we have a uh, one of the core committers there who's been contributing back heavily as we've tuned up running ever larger Kubernetes clusters on behalf of our customers. And I think that's one of the benefits is because we're supporting a large number of customers who are doing things at scale and then in aggregate are doing things at greater scale than, than is seen in most places. We're able to observe where some of those corner cases, those rough edges are, et cetera, and, and feed those fixes, patches and performance improvements back upstream as well. So that's kind of a, a unique a unique position to be able to contribute into the community from that viewpoint. Yeah. I mean, if you look at, if you look at some of 
some of the more commercially based open source projects. If you go back five, 10 years, cloud was not a very big player in the market at that time. And there was a lot of demand from, from data centers you know, Red Hat or in particular, people putting Linux into data centers and Red Hat made a good business out of doing that. So what happened then is, you know, if you look at 2009, 2010, I think EMR was one of the first things that AWS came out with. And because I was at Netflix at the time and we said, it's annoying trying to run this Hadoop thing. Maybe we can use the Amazon version. And we switched over to running running on EMR at that time. So that, you know, starting an entire Hadoop cluster is, is quite complicated and building a service around that is that kind of thing is something that AWS is good at. So what we found was that the market for a lot of these open commercial open source vendors was based around selling into the data center and selling it to be installed and just doing support of it running in the data center. Meanwhile, AWS was picking up customers saying, well, I'm running it in the cloud. Could you run it for us, please? Because it's annoying having to keep updating this thing and keeping it working. So AWS started running open source on behalf of its customers in the cloud. And that was all fine while there was still a major market in the data center. But I think in the last couple of years, we've seen more and more of the net new business moving to cloud and the balance of traffic, balance of business between data center and cloud has moved heavily towards cloud, particularly for these net new workloads, which is where a lot of the open source businesses it lies, right? So now you're seeing some of these companies have managed to create good businesses in the cloud by, by figuring out how to run that open source software as a service and others are you know, less good at doing that and they are competing more with AWS because it's a core competency of us to run software as a service. So we've got a bit of friction here that's been happening in the market. But overall, I think there's been complaints and um, sort of a lot of press articles about this. But what we're seeing is that people are just being successful. There's room in the market for AWS to do an open source service and for the company to provide a differentiated service as well. We've seen great results from St. Mongo that we came out with DocumentDB at Christmas and about reInvent at the end of last year. And since then, we've seen MongoDB's own as a service product growing extremely well. They've had a couple of quarters where they've released their numbers. So I think we've seen, we're not seeing competition as such. There's just a big market and we're just occupying different points in that market. And it's possible to have everybody be successful in this space. Yeah, there's a lot of customer demand and a lot of different approaches customers want to take. So uh... Not a zero-sum game, that's for sure. I think, I mean, there was a blog post I put out in February called Keeping Open Source Open um, about the what we were getting into with uh, Elastic, particularly the Elastic search engine. And AWS has had an Elastic product since 2015 just to take the free version and run it more more easily for people and to take the Apache license version. And then Elastic themselves have been adding extra added value to that and uh, providing a free version, but also having a commercial version. And one of the um, points of contention, obviously we need security everywhere and the free version didn't have security in it. And eventually after some back and forth and going around talking to people, AWS licensed a security package and has open sourced that package and provided it as a, a plugin to the free version of Elastic. And you know this caused a little bit of 
um, back and forth in the uh, in the press and on on Twitter and whatever. But in the end, what we've got is we've made it easier to use an open source package by contributing more to open source. And Elastic themselves are doing quite well as a business, so I don't think we can. You know, they're a big public company now. They're doing they, they can look after themselves. They've got their own differentiation. But what we've been doing is releasing the things that we wanted to bundle into our own Elasticsearch services extensions. Um, we've been releasing those as Apache licensed open source projects. And that's called Open Distro for Elasticsearch. We've been blogging about it very heavily on the open source blog. It's like two posts a week for the last few months. And there's a lot going on in that space as we basically build a community around these new open source extensions to the Elastic product. So that's been kind of the most sort of topical thing recently. But I think overall, we've been doing fine with it. And the, the various other open source companies have also been figuring out that they can be they can do well as well. It's, it's not been, again, it's not been a zero-sum game. And we've been, it's a little bit of a nuanced story in some respects, but I think in the end everything's working out fine yep and it's all good for customers which is uh, which is the main thing yeah hey adrian thanks so much for joining us again and, and sharing your thoughts yeah you're welcome and thanks for listening we do love to get your feedback aws podcast at amazon.com is the place to do that and until next time keep on building